0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At All right, everyone. Sorry about that. We were trying something new, and uh, we're not experts, and so unfortunately, that did not work. Um, but hopefully we will get that fixed, um, and we'll try again next week. Um, but good thing is we don't have to hope in technology. We get to hope in Christ on a daily basis, and uh, that's where that's where we find our satisfaction. And so um, also one thing, if you missed at the very beginning, I made an announcement that directly below the video, there's an area where you can... Uh, connect with us. We want to know who is joining us for this uh, gathering online. So if you could just take a few moments and fill out that form when you get a chance, that would be fantastic. You can also do it after the sermon. That would be great as well. Um, But just want to have a record of just being able to connect with you and pray for you as well on that. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and grab those. Uh, We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 today. We've spent about 13 weeks in Ecclesiastes right now looking at uh, the first eight chapters. So today, starting in chapter 9, Solomon begins to really repeat what he said in the earlier chapters. He, he just kind of uh, takes a different angle at it, though, that we're going to see today. And so he really kind of starts just pouring out for us um, some practical aspects to all that he has really seen under the sun and all that he's observed kind of in this experiment that he has um, set his heart out to discover and figure out how the world works and what is God doing ultimately in the work and so in the world. And so we're going to begin be in chapter 9 today um, and this is still very important for you to hear the Word of God and just contemplate what the Lord is doing um, just in your transformation this morning. And so I want you to think through that as we kind of recap this in a lot of ways, but there's, there's going to be some new things for us, and so don't tune me out because I, you hear me say that Solomon's just recapping for us the first eight chapters, um, but it's really important for us. So I want to start in verse 1. It says this, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. All right, so he's clarifying who he's talking about here. He's saying, hey, here's what I've noticed. Here's what I've kind of sought out for the righteous and the wise and those who submit to God, their deeds, their lives, the things that befall their lives. It's all in the hands of God. Nothing is literally brought to us, whether good or evil, that has not passed through the hands of God, whether he has caused it or whether he has allowed it to happen. Everything is coming from his hands. And so he's going to then kind of attack what I call a lot of religious silliness that's out there today by this next line that's wildly unpopular, but it's also very true for us. Here's what he says. Whether it is love or hate. Now, what I mean by religious silliness is there tends to be among evangelical preachers right now this emphasis that if you follow Jesus, good things are going to happen to you. And I have a lot of problems with that, namely what the Bible teaches. Because if I read the story right, guys like John the Baptist, um, he gets his head cut off for doing what God asks of him. So John the Baptist did exactly what God asked of him, and yet his territory was not expanded. His, his 401k was not improved. He didn't get a, a bigger house, nicer vehicles. No, in the end, he got his head cut off because of what Jesus asked him to do. And I want you to hear me say this. I, I've got. Nothing to really gain from this. Nothing to gain other than just obedience to Christ and His message. The message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, is not that if you're good, He blesses you. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that He is enough, no matter what your circumstance. That's the message. If you start getting off of that message, if you start making promises then you become a liar and you stray into what we call prosperity gospel, prosperity preaching. I really don't like to call it prosperity gospel because it's void of the gospel. It's not the gospel at all. Because Jeremiah, a faithful prophet, gets beat up naked and thrown into a ditch. Because Moses, who is faithful, dies before ever even walking into the promised land. Because John the Baptist, as I mentioned, gets beheaded. Like I don't think I need to continue with examples of faithful men in scriptures where it ended badly for them. We say it ended badly; it ended the way God intended for it to end for their glory. Like here's my example: as you grow older, oh I'm sorry. Um, the scriptures say this. I know that God watches over the deeds of those who love Him, but nobody knows what tomorrow will bring. No one. There's no one who knows what tomorrow holds. It might be joy, or it might be sorrow. No one knows for sure. There's only one event that is certain for all of us. And that event is death. Whether, again, you're doing something right or you're doing something wrong, we know that in all of the world, one event that is guaranteed for every person that lives, as Solomon is laying out here, is death. Death is coming. And you're going to find out really quickly why Solomon's kind of not the person that you want to invite over for dinner. Look what he says in verse 2. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So God the Father watches over the lives and the actions of those who love Him, but you can't be sure of what tomorrow holds. The only thing we can be sure of is the fact that um, death is coming. And there's something about death that reveals to us that something's gone wrong in the universe. Because death in the end makes no sense and dooms us to repeat the mistakes of the past over and over and over again. Like Here's my example. As you grow older, life teaches you. Like, life just teaches you things. It teaches you that you're not as strong as you think you are. It teaches you that you're not as smart as you think you are. It introduces humility to you eventually. So you learn and you grow and you grow in wisdom and you grow in knowledge um, and you figure out peace and life and all of these things and then you die. And you cannot, as hard as you try to, you cannot impart that wisdom. What you've learned through life, through the many years of life, you cannot impart that to the next generation. Because they have to, again, go through life, both as, as Solomon kind of laid out in, in Ecclesiastes 3, the good, the bad, the times of joy, and the times of sorrow, the times of laughter, and the times of mourning. Like, you've got to include all all of those ingredients that essentially lead us into understanding how God is orchestrating life to function. And if you don't believe me, like just hang out with a 20-year-old who's done a lot of reading. And I can just teach you firsthand, like they think that they have a lot of wisdom. They think that they have a lot of life. They think that they know what is going to happen and what's going to happen to them by them doing X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day... We have to experience life in order to understand truly what is going on in the world. And here's the reality. Death is the evidence that something has gone cataclysmically wrong in the universe. And even if we're not talking religiously here, let's pretend we're not doing church this morning. We're at a country club uh, meeting. Let's just say we're talking philosophy here over theology. Let's say we're not talking about what the Bible says. Let's just say, uh, what can we learn from our surroundings um, and from the world around us? There is, out of the mouths of men and women, this idea that you are deserving. Like our world, the way the world functions is that people deserve things. You are deserving of comfort. You are deserving of peace. You are deserving of all things. And the universe says, now I'm not talking about the Bible, the universe the way we kind of perceive everything that's going on, the universe says one thing that everyone deserves, and that's ultimately death. Because that's the only thing that everyone, regardless of wealth, regardless of poverty, regardless of status or privilege, regardless of who you are, where you are, the one thing the universe agrees on is that everyone is going to experience death whether it's karma, yin and yang, whatever is out there that's been set into motion, everything is boiling down to the fact that everyone's going to experience death. And that, again, is not only an internal, but an external um, affirmation that something has gone wrong in the universe. Because if everyone is trying to, from a worldview, not biblically, from a worldview, if everyone is trying to say that we deserve comfort and peace and happiness and whatever it looks like, But yet in the end, everyone receives death. That shows us that there's something more going on behind the scenes or that something is cataclysmically broken within our world, within our understanding of how things are operating and working. And so what can we learn from our surroundings and from the world around us? So country club over now. We're ending that kind of meeting of just looking at the world around us. Let's move back into what is the Bible showing us that's allowing us to understand why this is a reality. Why this is true. Because here's the thing. Here's the truth. Is you cannot... You cannot solve death in and out of your own strength. Like, you can't beat it. No one can beat it. And here's the reality is that right now our world is trying to. They're trying to figure out how to avoid that ending reality of death. And there's been a lot of different ways. I mean, fountain of youth theories. Um, Right now, the most popular one is being cryogenically frozen Uh, Guys like Simon Cow and Larry King are big advocates of cryogenically being frozen, although Larry King kind of looks like he's already there. Um, But the point is, is that everyone is certain of this one thing, death, and everyone's trying to have an answer for it. And so Solomon here is saying, listen, it doesn't matter if you're righteous or if you're unrighteous. It doesn't matter if God looks at the actions of the children of God, because in the end, we're all going to die. And this is evidence that something's gone wrong. So look at what he says in verse 3 here. This, and he's referring to death here, this death is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after they go to the dead. So he's saying basically that sin and death cohabitate in this world, and that we die because something that is um, of us is fractured out of the rhythm of with how God created us to be. So He created us, and then because of the sin that we committed, broke the world, and because of that sin and the breaking of us and the world around us, everything at this point has an end goal of death. Everything's heading towards that. So let's look at verse 4. It kind of gives us this little bit of a a hope here, an opportunity for us today. Verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. I mean, I would agree with that. I would essentially rather be a living dog than a dead lion. This is Solomon trying to kind of play nice with us here or to kind of provide us a little bit um, insight into, hey, maybe it's okay to hang out with him. Maybe he actually has some good news for us. He's like, look, you're dogs, you're evil, you're sinners. That's why you're dying. But hey, a living dog is better than a dead lion. That's as close as we have to him being friendly with us. So let's look at verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. nothing. And really, there's nothing theological about that. The dead know nothing. People who are alive are afraid of death. They know that it's coming. They're able to see that it's coming, and it gives them an opportunity to kind of address what to do about it. However, the dead know nothing at all. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So if you're here, because if you are a believer in Christ in here, you're going, wait a minute, that's not right, because our love does go on. We live eternally with Christ. The wedding supper of the Lamb, banqueting table of the King. All right, He's, he's making very clear here, Uh, to make a distinction between those two, eternal and what's happening now. He's saying, under the sun. you got to look at this. We talk about beyond the sun is the eternal salvation with Christ right now. He's looking at everything that's done under the sun. He's looking at our world right now. Under the sun, you're done. You have no more influence under the sun. Your love has died. Your hate has died. Your envy has died. You leave everything here when you die. So you've got this chance because you're alive. Scripture is saying this is a gift to you, that you are not like the dead, and that you are still living. There's an opportunity for you now because you are still living. So the plea here from Solomon is that you and I, with this minimal amount of time that we have been given, with this small block, some of us are going to live to be 70 or 80, some of us are going to live to be 90, um, some of us may be 102, some of us maybe 30. But with the limited amount of time that we've been given, Solomon is pleading with you and pleading with me to not pursue comfort, but to pursue significance. Solomon's making a plea here to not pursue comfort, but to pursue meaning, significance, beauty, depth, and peace. Now there's a very, very, very different framework than the world you and I live in that says, our pursuit is not depth, but rather it's comfort. That's why you have as many channels on your TV that you have right now. That's why you have as many chairs in your house as you have. That's why you drive the car that you drive. That's why you live in the house that you do. Because everything is built around comfort and ease. And if you don't believe me, just pay attention to your frustrations When it takes three minutes to warm something up as opposed to one minute. (laughs) Maybe some of you were frustrated because the beginning of this worship service didn't start as smoothly as you would have liked it to have started. Because again, that's the posture of comfort. That's the posture of me being pleased rather than me offering myself up for service. And he starts to outline some of the ways he thinks that looks like. How do we pursue significance over comfort? So look at it with me. How do you seek significance? How do you seek joy? How do you seek depth and beauty in life? Verse 7. And you've heard me mention this one a few times throughout Ecclesiastes. He says this, verse 7. Go, eat your bread and joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Now, if you have a Baptist background... Um, and I know not everyone in our church does, but I also know this live stream is going out kind of beyond those who, who are a part of our church and our usual gatherings. But either way, many of you, many of you have probably never seen in Scripture the prescription to drink wine, uh, which is also alcohol, if you didn't know that. Um, all I'm going to say regarding this verse is drink responsibly with a merry heart. Know your age, know your limits. And whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, lest you get drunk. Now, I should also say, because again, a lot of times people are say, okay, you know, eat your bread and enjoy it. Drink your wine and enjoy it. Uh, We're quick to kind of jump on the wine thing in, in, in the sense of saying that that's wrong. We shouldn't do that. But also, let's just attack bread here for a minute. All right, like eat your bread, but eat it responsibly. With a merry heart, know your age, know your limits, eat to the glory of God, lest you become a glutton. So there's kind of both sides of it where we need to do these things responsibly. Again, not for our comfort, but for depth. To actually enjoy these gifts that God has given us for His purpose and His design, not outside of that. There are several things that happens in this text. I'm going to kind of go through them as quickly as I can. The Scriptures just said that good food and good wine are to be enjoyed with good friends. Join yourself with the living. Good friends who have good senses because this is how you practice for heaven. Do you want to live deep? Do you want to find significance? What he's saying here is McDonald's in your car is not dinner. Let's just talk. A Hot Pocket, although an ingenious idea, Is not the biblical definition of dinner. According to the scriptures, dinner is the really holy time period that should be slow, that should be deep, that we should laugh, that we should chew our food slowly and be grateful, that we should drink our wine slowly and be thankful, that there should be this thing that friends um, should be invited over for dinner once this social distancing is lifted. Because good food and good wine and good friends are God's good gift to you. And it's how we practice for heaven. Remember, wedding supper of the Lamb, banqueting table of the King. These are the illustrations, the good gifts that He's given us that are foreshadowing a great, wonderful time that we're going to be experiencing with Christ one day. And He's using this to describe it, namely heaven. That you would be content with with where you are in that. So here would be my example. To some of you, good food and good wine is is a filet, medium rare, with an expensive bottle of wine and bread and all the trimmings. For some of you, like, that is a good meal that could be rightly enjoyed. For others, a good meal is a gourmet burger with seasoned fries and a craft beer or root beer. For me personally, love my root beer. So, listen, the people who have the fries, burger, and a beer shouldn't be envious of the people eating the filet. God has given you your portion. God has given you your life. Enjoy where you are, enjoy the friends that you have, enjoy the portion that has been given to you. Don't be in tomorrow, be in today. If you want to live deeply, if you want to find significance, Psalm is just starting us out here. Start at the dinner table. Now, isn't this an interesting reflection on the character of God? That where He starts with is actually our enjoyment. He starts with our enjoyment. And, and I kind of want to share a little bit with you. So when I was growing up, I was kind of in and out of church. We, we weren't raised in the church, and so I would kind of go with friends here and there. But I had this kind of view of God um, I had this view of him in the South, especially in a legalistic kind of culture. Um, a lot of times I had this view that if, if you enjoyed life or if you had fun, God was kind of waiting with a taser to zap you in order to get you back to praying and be obedient to what he wants you to do. And that was kind of what like my view of God was just him in heaven with a big badge on his on his chest. And, and he was just essentially just policing fun. All right. Can't have too much fun. Um, in order to really uh, be faithful to him and so that was my view of him Um, and and ultimately like I I would even think okay now that I've become a Christian become a believer if I'm trying to have fun at the same time God is going to kind of question me in that that are you really trusting me if you're not fun but here's one of the beauties in this reality is is That's not what God is like. God is actually for our fun. He's for our enjoyment because it wells within us um, a desire to worship, a desire to experience goodness and gifts that he's provided for us so that, again, those gifts would roll past the enjoyment of them and roll into worshiping and loving him for who he is and what he's provided for us. And listen, if you're going, Dwayne, I'm having a hard time with some of this. What you need to do later tonight is go to Psalm 104 and read the entire chapter, specifically verses 14 through 16, that will tell you that from the cattle of the field to the grains of the field to the wines in the vineyard, all was given to make the heart of man merry. So eat dinner. I think there's a little foreshadowing there that it is kind of preparing us for heaven it's an impartation of God's grace to us. It's an impartation of rightness to God's people at the dinner table. So that's part of what's being celebrated around the dinner table is that it's more than just eating food, that it's a gift that God has given us to enjoy this side of heaven, to enjoy under the sun. There's significance there. But it doesn't stop with dinner. I know some of you are like, this is easy. Well, we'll keep reading. Go eat your bread and joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Now, he's not talking just in the sense of like, um, go wash all your clothes all the time. Like That's not what he's talking about here. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, white garments are symbolic of practical acts of righteousness. So he's saying, do dinner, drink wine, laugh, enjoy friends. Let conversation be deep and rich. Smile and enjoy it. And then do not stand at the center of your own universe. You have been blessed to be a blessing. Do not let all that was given to you terminate with you. You want depth? You want significance? You want meaning? You can't be God. You cannot say, all that was given to me is for me. You have to say, I have been blessed in order to bless. So do dinner and be a blessing to others. And it's beautiful when you can do those things simultaneously. And then there's this. The next line will scare us a little bit because again, um, Baptists, but here we go. (laughs) Let not oil be lacking on your head. Oil in both the Old Testament and New Testament is always a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. So he's saying, do dinner, be a blessing to others and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life wherever He takes you. May you always be aware of the still small voice of God in your head and in your heart aligning with Scripture that is leading and guiding you. Now, what he'll say next will be, again, difficult for some of us. And I want to show you something really interesting about this. Verse 9. Enjoy life... With the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. He's attaching to this idea of having a wife or being married toil. Like he doesn't warn us about dinner. He doesn't say do dinner, but there's going to be dishes afterwards. Um, I'm just telling you, you're going to have to wash some dishes. He, He doesn't say you need to bless out. You need to give out what's been given to you, but you're not going to have as many channels as the next door neighbor. Because if you're receiving, but also then giving, then guess what? You're not storing up as much resources because you're constantly giving out your resources. So your budget might look differently because that's the way God designed it to be. He's not about you becoming rich and wealthy, but rather that you are in your rich, uh, richness and wealth distributing and giving it out. He doesn't warn us about those things. But when it comes to a spouse... Follow the Holy Spirit, but sometimes it might get weird. But when it comes to a spouse, he says, enjoy your wife, it's going to be some work. So let's talk about that. I can see my wife in the back here probably getting a little nervous. I have found through my own marriage that intimacy, spiritual, emotional intimacy must be worked at, and it does not come easily. Now the rest of it, might come real easy for us, but getting really deep down to the core of who she is and who I am, that's difficult. And I've got to die to myself all the time for that to even be possible. I've got to kill this but she mentality. That has to die. Solomon says, seek depth with your wife, with your husband. This is your portion. Let me try to explain uh, what he's saying there. Ten years ago, before I met Kelsey, I had in my head everything that I thought I needed. I I need this kind of girl. I need a girl who does this. I need a girl who understands this. I was in ministry at the time. And honestly, at that time, I thought I would be living on a farm, pastoring a rural church um, somewhere in, in rural Tennessee. I had a very different thing in my head than what currently is. Um, So I had this list of things, and then all of a sudden, Kelsey came along. And honestly, Kelsey was very few things on that list. Um, Yeah, She just made a comment in the back. Like, my wife is not cut out for life on the farm. It's just true. She's not cut out for life on the farm. Right after we got married uh, and she moved to my small rural town in Tennessee, she called me on her way to work one time uh, because she thought all the barns were on fire. Um, and this was in kind of fall time uh, during the year. And so if, uh, if you don't understand what's going on, why barns are smoking, um, it's because it's tobacco harvesting season. And so they harvest the tobacco and they put it in the barns. And then I'm not going to go into it, but they smoke. All right. And if you don't understand what I'm doing, probably the only person on here that does right now is Zach Dearman, And so you can ask him about it as well. Um, but it's difficult as some of the things that we have had to wrestle through have been, and we have had our days of toil, I've never lied about that to you. Like, there are times where we've had to go see counselors at times. There's times where we've had to really work through some difficult things in our lives. We needed help. We needed a guide. And so we had to sit down and wade through all of those things. And what has happened is those two things have collided, me and her, and what God put in my heart, and what God put ultimately in her heart. And as they rub on one another, again, like sandpaper rubbing, rubbing together, like iron slamming into iron, we both get sharpened. And we both begin to understand the grace, mercy, and beauty of Christ in each other as this thing continues. It is difficult. It is toil But let's also talk just real straight with you here. I do not believe that you can enjoy the husband or wife that was given to you as your portion if you've got a pornography problem. The reason being is you will be living in a fantasy that is not your reality. And you cannot enjoy where you are if your head head and your heart is just somewhere else. It's impossible. You cannot enjoy the wife or husband that's been given to you if you're flirting and spending your vitality on something else. You cannot enjoy the husband or wife that has been given to you as your portion if you are spending your vitality and your energy and your creativity imagining scenarios with you and someone else. You cannot enjoy the husband or wife that has been given to you if you're cheating on them physically, emotionally, or spiritually, whatever it looks like. I mean, I just wonder how much better marriages would be if you took the same energy, vitality, and creativity, and time you spend on fantasy and pornography and poured it into your wife or husband. In short, Solomon says this, the grass is not greener on the other side. And if it is, it's because you haven't hopped over the fence and jacked up that grass yet. That's Solomon. Don't get mad at me. And don't be saying, you don't know my spouse. No, you don't know you. Solomon would say, if there's one person you can be sure you don't know, it's you. Now let me ask you a question. Was your husband, was your wife not at one time lush green grass? Well, what happened to it? You did. You happened to it. So you own your part no matter what that part is. No matter how small, no matter how big, you own that part. But to to now look at more lush green grass and go, oh, wouldn't it be great to to run over to that prairie? Is just you destroying one and running over to another to destroy it. The thing that both fields will have in common is you. You will be what they have in common. Solomon goes, it's not greener. And if it is, it won't be for long after you get there. What he's trying to say is be where you are. Will this require some fight? Absolutely it will. I mean, God has this real sense of humor. I will wire them completely different. I'll make them like different things, different, uh, think different ways. I won't make one half tone. Like it's whatever it looks like. He's wiring it differently and then He's going to have us cohabitate together. Two sinners, broken people, liking different things, enjoying different things, whatever it looks like, and then bring them together, two becoming one, and then work it out. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult and you're going to have to work at it. But I think that's true. Like, There's a cost involved in us working at something and in, in ultimately see beauty come from it. I mean, we're in Indiana. If you want a view of the mountains, it's going to cost you a long drive. Sitting in front of the beach requires actually getting there. I will never ever pretend with you that marriage is easy, but I will always preach to you that it is God's gift to you. And if you would pour what he has given you into it, who knows how deep and beautiful it could get but you cannot enjoy what you have been given if you're not even where you are. Let's keep going. So let's eat, let's give back, let's follow the Holy Spirit, let's seek out depth in relationships, specifically the one with your spouse. And then in verse 10, Whether you, uh, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. The Scriptures here are pleading with you to be a good worker, I don't care if you work for Michael Scott. You've got to do good work every day and see what you're capable of. There's just something that happens. And if you think through this, it's kind of a weird deal. There's something that happens when we've done a good job that we sit back from that and we look at the productivity and that kind of wells up within us a bit of worship. Like we feel good about doing something that was productive. This is why some of you, vacation is difficult because when you're sitting doing nothing, you actually don't get any joy from that because you have to do something. There's just, it's built within us. There's something about productivity that even brings rest. There just is. Now, there's a time to sit and read and do nothing, but the Scriptures say, work with all your might. Turn off Fortnite. Get to work Quit chatting, get to work, pour yourself into a place and see what you're capable of. Now the next thing he's going to do is give a word of warning. So I want you to look at this word of warning. It's it's a really interesting word. We're talking about contentment here. We're talking about depth of life. We're talking about kind of the carpe diem idea. Look at what he says in verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. There's two warnings occurring here. Number one, he's saying that for all your well-laid-out plans, one event can destroy it. One event that you never saw coming can just totally wreck all of the plans that you had. Coronavirus, anybody? So it's better to put your faith in something beyond the sun rather than under it. Where in an instant, you can get snared up in it like a bird or get hung up in it like a fish in a net. But there's another warning here and it's one I found more intriguing. He's warning against leaning into our natural abilities. Now what I've learned is that there are men and women who excel at business from uh, the day they were born. They didn't have to go to business college. They they just excel at it. There are guys and gals who excel at being athletes. Uh, they they didn't do anything. They were just born athletic and they were just given the right combination of speed and size. And like I referenced last week, Shaquille O'Neal, he like he should be able to dunk a basketball because he's seven foot three, weighing over three hundred pounds. Like. He didn't do anything to get that. He didn't knock on the womb and go, all right, I need height and I need size. Like God gave it to him. It was a natural gifting. And the word of warning here is that no matter how successful you are in business, athletics, education, whatever field you're in, natural gifting will never bring about contentment because no one is given the natural ability of contentment. You know how I know this? I've had two babies, one on the way. Anybody ever had a kid just born with the natural gift of contentment? Anyone? Like just laying in bed right after they're born, first couple of nights going, Mommy, I'm really worried about you. I mean, you had this horrible ordeal, 32 hours long. Don't worry about me, I'm fine. My diaper's a little wet, but I'll be okay. Till the morning, nah, I'm hungry. I'll just suck my thumb. Don't worry about it. You take care of you. I'm all right. Anybody ever seen that baby before? If you say you do or have, I do not believe you. There's no baby born with contentment. If anything, they're born with the highest state of discontentment probably for the rest of their lives. I'm wet. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I hate everything. Give me food. Give me comfort now. Contentment is learned in life. And it's gifted to us by the Holy Spirit of God. It's not natural abilities that bring about success, glory, money, power, fame, whatever. This is His word of warning to us. Put your faith in something outside of this world. Because under the sun, one event can destroy all your well-laid-out plans. Don't put all your hope in your natural ability to talk your way into something or talk your way out of something. This is why some of you have gotten to, to very successful levels of business but still aren't content. Or it's why you've, gotten, uh, you've achieved so many things but yet are still not content. This is what he's talking about. Now he's got a story for us and we'll end with this story. Look at verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me. So Solomon's going, okay, I, I saw this one thing happen. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in it, so pay attention. This is what Solomon's saying here. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. All right, here's what's happening. Small town, not a lot of men in it. He's referencing uh, no warriors there. Not a lot. Not enough to fight off this army. So the army on the outside of the city, the great army besieges it. It means that they don't let anything in and they don't let anything out. Um, no food can get in. No water can get in. No, no, none of the hurt people can get out. No, they literally just lock the city down. And then this is what happens. They've laid siege to the city that doesn't have any warriors in it. Verse 15, But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. He's saying in this little illustration, in this little story, that there are big ideas that are well accepted that are wrong. And there are small whispers coming from the most unheralded messengers that are right. And the biggest, loudest message is probably always incorrect. Look at what he says next. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Let me give you an example of this wisdom better than the weapons of war. This is saying that sometimes by hearing and understanding what God has asked of us and what He wants and walking in obedience to it, we can overcome the largest of armies or the best of ignorant men. Like here would be my example specifically of this reference of of what is right overcoming weapons of war. Um, I did not live through it, but I've done a lot of reading on the civil rights movement uh, in the late 50s, 60s with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Dr. King understood the Scriptures, and he understood what God said in the Scriptures. And by being obedient and walking in the way that He walked, He overthrew hundreds of years of ignorance and violence. Policemen and German shepherds, batons and ropes, and burning crosses. He did it by being obedient to the Word of God, by following the wisdom of Scripture. This is a powerful example of wisdom. God-given wisdom trumping the might of weapons and power and government um, and broken systems. Now, the thing about chapter 9 is it's very simple. I think you would have a hard time arguing against the simplicity of this. He says, essentially, hey, go to dinner. Don't hoard everything that you've been given. Follow the still, small voice of God inside of you. Pour into deep relationships, specifically your spouse. Work hard. Don't lean on your natural ability." Trust in something bigger than you. And in the end, find what God has asked and be obedient to it. So I think the question is, if it really is this simple, then why does it seem that so much is still wrong? I mean, if it's this simple, then why are we divorcing like we are? If it's this simple, why have so many of us not been able to find contentment? If it's this simple, why are so many of us struggling with how life plays itself out for us? And he answers it in verse 18 Wisdom is better than weapons of war because one sinner destroys much good. Death flies, or dead flies, make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. A little foolishness, a little bit of people deciding that their way is better than God's way or that they're smarter than God, or that God just doesn't understand their specific circumstance. That's the reason why we get off. That's the reason why we break what God has given us, because we think we're smarter than Him. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. He says, all it takes is for one fly in the perfume to make the perfume stink. All it takes is one husband to say, forget what the Scriptures command and forget the work that it would take, I'm not doing it. All it takes is one woman to go, I will not forgive, I will not forgive him. All it takes is for a person to go, I don't care what it says, my money is mine, I'll do what I want with my money. All it takes is one to say, for the wisdom of God, no, I'll follow my own wisdom. Now the danger in that is that Scripture says that there's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, it leads to death, it leads to destruction. And the Proverbs would say, in response to that, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. It seems to be the conventional wisdom of God that He should shame our strength by accomplishing things not through our strengths, but actually through our weaknesses. I mean, do you remember the Sunday school story about the Battle of Jericho? Have you ever thought through the madness of that? Here's Israel, they've got crossed over the river and they've got this giant castle in front of them. Like this crazy story. Joshua goes, what should we do? God goes, just send in the band. Put plume hats on the band, send them in, walk around seven times, blow your horn. And like if I was leading that, I'd be like, "Um, that's going to get us killed. But this is the way in which God triumphs. For those of you who grew up in Sunday school, remember the story of Gideon? He raises an army to fight another invading army, and God goes, you know what? You've got too many men. Gideon's like, we're outnumbered 100 to 1. Too many. Why don't you get rid of half of them? And then get rid of another half of them. And then get rid of another half of them. Gideon's like, it's just me and my brother. And they win because that's how God designed it. I mean, David and Goliath, I mean, this is how God operates. He, he goes, let me shame your strength. And in your weakness, I will accomplish more than you've ever dreamed. This is what God does. And he's saying, trust him. So where do we go from here? Here's the thing I love about Ecclesiastes 9. Ecclesiastes 9 is not some complex text in the Scriptures. I mean, I don't care who you are in here. With a pencil and piece of paper, you can write out, am I walking in deep relationships? Am I celebrating the goodness of God in dinner and drink with good friends that were gifted to me by Him? Am I giving out what's been given to me? Am I listening for the Lord and following Him in obedience? Are you being obedient to what what God has provided for you in a spouse? Because this is wisdom. And anything outside of this is like a dead fly in a perfume jar. No matter how pretty the perfume was supposed to smell, in the end it only stinks. So are you pouring into your marriage? Are you pouring into this life? Now listen, you don't have to listen to me. You don't have to listen to the Scriptures. You can pursue comfort with all your might. You can, but whether you're religious or not, gather all the comforts you want. You will soon be dead. Soon. Maybe 10 years, maybe 40 years. But 40 or 50 years is nothing if you'll go pick up any book of history. It goes by just like that. And so what He's asking, what He's pleading, what He's commanding us to do is keep God's commandments to enjoy the gifts that He's given us while we're in this life under the sun and to truly think about them. I mean, this is kind of rule of life stuff. To truly think about how we're spending our time and our resources and how we're investing, not just money, but how we're investing our relationships So that it's stirring up something within us and with those around us that God is good and that He's faithful to us and that Christ is making provision for us. So may the sweet Spirit of Christ stir your heart to deeper waters and may you spend your energy and vitality and your strength pursuing significance over comfort. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your wise counsel to us. We thank you so much that you have provided for us the way for us to understand life. Because if we try to understand it in our own folly, lack of wisdom, We're going to get so frustrated because we don't see it through your eyes. So, God, thank you. Thank you for your truth that you've provided through Solomon. And thank you for these good gifts that you have provided to us food, relationships, work, marriage. Thank you for these good gifts. Because it's through these things that we see your character and that we're able to worship you because it reveals you. And God, I just pray that if there's people right now who, again, are just trusting in their own strength rather than you, they're trusting in their own skills and abilities rather than you, and I pray that you would just wreck us, that you would just bring us to the end of ourselves, so that we can see that Christ is our sufficiency, that Christ is what we need, not anything else. Put us there. Bring us to that place so that we can begin worshiping you and not ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At